same God. Uh, That you are the God who hates idolatry and who judges wickedness. Uh, That you are the God to whom we must turn, the God of mercy and of grace. We pray, O Lord, our God, that unlike Israel, who so often turned away with stubbornness of heart, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might respond appropriately to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 17, we come across, really, a gravestone. And it is the gravestone of the nation of Israel. Really, uh, what a tragedy it is. Such a people with such a noble history. Uh, Ten out of the twelve tribes, ten tribes named after ten of the sons of Jacob. A people that had been delivered through the exodus that had been preserved in the time of the judges, a people who had been ruled by Saul and David and then Solomon before that dreadful division, these ten tribes with such a noble history now exiled. What a words this passage finishes with. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day, never to be heard from again. Ten tribes, completely lost. Though this passage contains such a sober account of the end of these northern ten tribes of Israel, the God who came upon them in judgment is the same God who rules and reigns Uh, today. God's purposes have not finished, and for that we can praise Him. Uh, He still has purposes of salvation, which are extended now throughout all the earth, where men and women and boys and girls are bowing the knee to King Jesus, knowing everlasting salvation in Him. But though this God's purposes have not changed, there is so much for us to learn uh, in this second chapter, or in this uh, chapter 17 of the book of Second Kings. And in particular, uh, there are lessons to be learned here of God's judgment. So I want us to look at this passage today uh, and learn these lessons under three different headings. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to consider the reality of God's judgment. Secondly, in verses 7 through 17, we're going to see the reasons for God's judgment. And then lastly, in verses 18 through 23, we will have the warning of God's judgment, the reality of God's judgment, the reasons for His judgment, and the warning of His judgment. Let's look at these three headings. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we have the reality of God's judgment. The first two verses begin, as so many accounts in the book of First and Second Kings have begun, an introduction to another king. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. He reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of uh, the Lord. Nothing new there, right? All of the northern kings were kings who had done evil, and it even seems that this one wasn't as bad as 
many of the others, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before them. He didn't follow fully in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as we read time and time and time again uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. But then, as we move through this passage, in verse 3, we see uh, something a little bit unusual. Assyria, of course, was the superpower of these days, uh, and Israel had already begun to pay a tribute And Hoshea, we read here himself, had paid tribute to the king of Assyria. But then, Hoshea does something that seems to us to be a bit insane. He decides that he is going to withhold payment from Assyria and instead turn to the nation of Egypt for help, seeking an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. Well, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, doesn't take this well. This is rebellion in the ranks. And Shalmaneser knows nothing to do but to deal with it rather severely. And so we read verse uh, 5, uh, or excuse me, verse 4, that he then has the king, Hoshea, shut up and bound in prison. He's thrown into the slammer, so to speak, an Assyrian prison. And then, verse 5, the king of Assyria invades the land of Israel. He comes to the city of Samaria, and for three years he besieges it. What a short description. But contained in that short description, imagine the kind of suffering, the oppression that was felt by a city under siege. So often when a city is under siege, the people starve for lack of food. Uh, There's no uh, freedom, they're oppressed, many die. There is a cloud of despair hanging over the whole city. And that's surely what happened to Samaria in this uh, this instance. We read that uh, that isn't done. After a uh, 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 three-year siege of the city, we're then told, verse uh, Uh, Verse 6, and we read elsewhere, this is actually under the next Assyrian king, King Sargon, that Assyria then captures Samaria. He carries the Israelites away, places them in Hala, in the city of Assyria, near the river Gozen, the cities of the Medes, and Israel forever is now lost in exile. Uh, This really happened. Uh, We actually read of this same event in uh, one of the Assyrian accounts uh, from Sargon. Uh, Sargon claims that the men of Samaria with their king were hostile to me and consorted together not to carry out their vassal obligations or bring tribute to me. So they fought me and I clashed with them and took as booty 27,280 people with their chariots and their gods in whom they trusted. I incorporated 200 chariots into my army. The rest of the people I made to dwell within Assyria. I restored the city of Samaria and made it greater than before. It was now in Assyrian uh, hands. What, uh, What an event this is. Well, how are we to understand this? Well, 
Dear friends, this passage isn't primarily about Hoshea. Uh, it's certainly not a commentary on the political decisions that he made. But rather, this passage is chiefly about God and about God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Assyria was simply the Lord's instrument. God had long said that he was going to uproot and scatter Israel for their sins. As early as 1 Kings chapter 14. But it had been long delayed because of God's patience. But now it finally came to pass. The reality of God's judgment against the people of Assyria. But now secondly, I want us to move on to consider the reasons for God's judgment. Why did God judge these people? And that's what the text is primarily concerned about. And we're going to see in the reasons for judgment against them, we're going to see sins which people continue to commit today and which are deserving of judgment as well. And we're going to be making application of all of that under the third point today. But here I want us to see now the reasons for God's judgment. This is uh, 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 recounted for us in verses 7 through 17. This and this occurred because, verse 7 begins. So there it is. These are the reasons why God came in judgment upon uh, Israel. And it really all has to do with their apostasy or their departure from the Lord. Uh, they were receiving the just desert for their sin, the just punishment for their wickedness and rebellion and departure from the living God. That's why this happened. And we can have, learn much ourselves from this. So I have six different things that I want us to see about these reasons for God's judgment. Six different things to do with Israel's apostasy. And the first thing that we see is that their apostasy is against God's goodness and grace. Their apostasy is against God's goodness and grace. Did you notice that right away in verse 7? The people of Israel had sinned. But who had they sinned against? They had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had been delivered from bondage and slavery in, in, in Egypt. The Lord had carried them uh, on eagles' wings. He had borne them up. He had caused the Red Sea to part. He had opened up the way into the promised land. He had given them His law he had preserved them at every point. He was a God of abounding mercy and grace. And yet it was this God that they had turned against in their apostasy and sin. Their sin had involved ingratitude against the God who had given them so much. And how important it is that we recognize that all of our sin especially that any apostasy or departure from the Lord is against His goodness and His grace. We have a God who has given us life, who has given us breath, who has given us food and friends and families. But even more than that, we have a God who has sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of of lost sinners, to rescue those who were under the dominion of, 
of sin. And He gives us this gracious gospel invitation to freely experience everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And dear friends, any apostasy, any turning away against this God is always a turning away against the God who has done this much for lost sinners. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6. It's a passage about apostasy. And it really makes this very point. (laughs) It's saying, look at all that God has done for you. There's a lot of difficult things about Hebrews chapter 6. Listen to what he is saying here. He's saying this, that it is impossible in the case of those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now you understand, this is not talking here about those who were truly saved by the Lord. Such can never finally and fully fall away. But nonetheless, the whole point of this passage is that apostasy, a turning away, from the living God, is turning away from a God who has given so much. That's what we need to remember. It teaches us that we need to be sure that we are those who are always responding with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that God has done. Can we not remember all that our God has done for us and to realize that we owe Him obedience and loyalty, and that we should trust Him because He has been a God who has been oh so gracious to us. So apostasy is against God's goodness and grace. Secondly, we see in this passage that apostasy is marked chiefly by idolatry. And that idolatry is a great, great sin. Isn't that really the theme of these verses? We read it in a lot of different ways. Verse 8, after saying that they sinned against the Lord their God, what did they do? They feared other gods. And then we go on a little bit and we read about how they built high places for idolatrous worship. Asherim, on every high hill and under every green tree. Or down in verse 12, they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Or verse uh, 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 15, they went after false idols. Or verse 16, they made for themselves metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. We read, over and over again, that the great sin which they committed was the sin of idolatry. They were worshiping something other than the true God. And isn't the first commandment that the Lord gave to His people this, that you shall have no other gods before me? It's the most important thing. You know, we live in a day and age in which people say it doesn't really matter that much who you worship. It's not the important thing. All that really matters is be a good person. You don't need God to be good. That's what we're told today. Just just live a moral life. Be a good person. Be Be a kind person. Dear friends, the greatest of all sins is to not worship the God who made us for life with himself. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Because the reality is, the reality is that if we don't worship the true God, we are going to worship something. We always do. And that's what happened in Israel. They turned away from the true God and they worshipped something. And so it is today. People are worshipping all sorts of other things. And they're turning away from the true God. Idolatry does matter. Apostasy is marked by idolatry, which is a great, great sin. But now thirdly, I want us to see apostasy's underlying motive. It's underlying motive which is to be like the nations around us. Did you see that mentioned uh, really uh, several times in our passage, verse uh, verse, um, 8? They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's what they did, and it's actually mentioned several other times. For example, verse 11 They made offerings in all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord had carried away uh, before them. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, they were told very clearly by the Lord before entering the land that they were to show no mercy to the nations. They were to make no covenant with the nations. They were to enter into no marriages with the nations. They were not to enter into the worship that the nations offered, that as God's people, they were to be holy and separate and distinct from the nations around them. So it is today. God's people are called to be a distinct people, set apart to the Lord, different from the world around us. And yet, doesn't apostasy so often occur out of a desire to fit in in the age in which we live? Uh, We see this uh, in our own day. I mean, how many people do you know that have left the faith today because uh, they reject the Bible's sexual ethics, what it says? It, It all seems like, well, it's just so out of step with what's being said in in our culture today. And many people, their worst fear is to be thought out of step with or behind the times, and they're influenced by the world around them and what the world says. And friends, we need to be careful that we're called to obey the Lord's commands. But the temptation was there nearly 3,000 years ago, and it remains today to just simply be like the nations around us. And we are called not to do that, to not compromise, to not be worldly. Now, fourthly, I want us to see that apostasy involves a rejection of God's warnings. Do we see this as well? Uh, That when the nation of Israel sinned against the Lord, what did the Lord do? Did He simply leave them to go their way? No, He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and by every seer saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers. He sent prophets to them, prophets like Elijah and Elisha, prophets to the northern kingdom like 
Hosea and Amos also that called them to repent. Even Isaiah and Micah, though ministering primarily to Judah, had words for the northern kingdom as well. The Lord didn't leave them alone, but sent them prophets to speak to them God's word. And yet, what did they do with the prophet's word? Verse 14, we're told that they would not listen, but they were stubborn. Word refers to being stiff-necked. Like an obstinate draft animal that refuses to take the yoke. And, and that's what the people were doing. They would not listen to what the prophets said. Dear friends, one of the things that we need is we need to listen when the Lord speaks to us through his appointed servants. And one of the greatest things that we need to ask the Lord, Lord, always give me a pliable heart. Lord, give me a heart that is willing to listen when you speak to me from your word. When I have a a parent or a friend or a fellow church member that comes to me and tells me God's word, I, I need to listen to that. I need to be humble to be willing to repent and to turn back to the Lord. Apostasy involves a rejection of God's warnings. The fifth thing about apostasy is this. It is that apostasy transforms us into the idols that we worship. Apostasy transforms us into the idols that we worship. You say, what? Look with me at verse 15. It says, They went after false idols and became false. How interesting. They went after false idols and became false. And this actually picks up on a biblical theme that we read in several places that those who worship idols become like the idols that they worship. Okay, uh, Ralph Davis in his commentary tells a story that he read. It's an interesting story. He speaks there of a four-year-old girl in North Wales whose complexion had turned orange. When uh, she was taken to the doctors, the doctors investigated and found out that this four-year-old girl was drinking daily one and a half liters of Sunny D. She was becoming like what she was drinking. And so it is with with those who worship idols. It's actually interesting, the the phrase here for false is the Hebrew word havel. It's the same that we hear of in Ecclesiastes when it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the word means that which is empty or insubstantial. And it's saying even as idols have nothing to them, they have eyes but do not see and ears, but they do not hear. So those who worship the idols become as empty as the idols themselves are. We turn into what we worship. And this is why we ought to worship the true God. (laughs) Because when we worship him, we become more like him. Isn't that what we were hearing about this morning? Fruit of the Spirit. That we become more like the God that we worship. So apostasy transforms us into the idols that we worship. But now let's move on. Number six, 
that apostasy often starts small and in secret and leads to greater and more open sin. Uh, We see that same uh, progression in this passage, uh, verse 9, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right, things in their heart, things that they thought no one else would notice. They had given up on the Lord in the secret place, but how quickly did those secret sins turn very public and very open? Because in the very next sentence we read that they begin to build for themselves high places in all of their towns. Watchtower, a fortified city. They begin to set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And the passage moves on and it seems with every verse the sins get worse and worse. If you look, for example, at verse 16. They abandoned the commandments of God. They made metal images of two calves. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and began to openly serve Baal, the God of the Canaanites. But then even further, verse 17, they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. And they used divination and omens. And then verse 17 says they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him uh, to anger. What brazen, intense, terrible sins they committed that had a small beginning with what they did in secret. And I tell you, apostasy follows so often that same path. It's giving up, as it were, on the Lord in the secret place. No life of prayer. No Bible reading, no joy in the worship of God. Harboring unrepentant sin in our hearts. It's that secret sin that leads to open apostasy. If you see somebody who openly and defiantly rejects the Lord whom they once claimed to know, friends, that didn't happen in a moment. It never does. Not in an instant. There's a progression from secret sin to that which is more open and worse. So what does that mean? It means that we, even in the secret place, need to guard our hearts and need to be careful to love and obey and serve the Lord fully. So that is the reasons for God's judgment. Let's move now lastly and finally on the warning of God's judgment. So we've seen the reality, we've seen the reasons. Lastly now, the warning of God's judgment. And we see this in verses 18 through 24. Therefore, verse 18, because of all the sins that we read about in verses 7 through 17, therefore, we read verse 18, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Actually, that same phrase of removing them out of his sight, banishing them from his presence, we read two other times. The end of verse 20, until he had cast them out of his sight. And then verse 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. 
this God who had seen all of the sins which Israel had committed now banishes them from his sight. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that God no longer noticed the things that they did or that he failed to be all-knowing and all-seeing or know where these people went or anything like that. But rather, this is a way of saying they, they no longer had the sweetness of his fellowship. They no longer, as it were, had the smile of his face, the look of his grace upon them, the warm fellowship of his presence. That's what the Lord is saying. That they were truly brought under the judgment of God for all of their sin. Why does he say this? Well, he says this to warn Judah as well. Verse 19 is a very interesting verse. Because here he says to the southern kingdom, well, listen to what we're saying. It's not just Israel, but it's Judah as well. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And what is he saying? He's saying to Judah, Judah, be careful, lest similar judgment comes also upon you. He warns here Judah. He says that they were walking in the same way. Well, this judgment, of course, speaks really ultimately of the final judgment which the Lord brings against all sin and unbelief. Ralph Davis says, we must understand that being removed from the Lord's presence may involve more than simply ending up in Assyria. And indeed, what we find in Holy Scripture are a number of various judgments. The flood in Noah's day. The Red Sea coming upon the Egyptian armies. The exile into Assyria. Later, for Judah, the exile into Babylon. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Each one of these judgments in time are, as it were, a harbinger or a foreshadowing of a greater judgment that is yet to come as the Lord's response to apostasy, to idolatry, and to unbelief. And that's ultimately what this passage points us to. It is the judgment that comes when our Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear on the clouds of heaven. And he is going to come back, and it's going to be unexpected, we are told, in the day that the Son of Man returns, as we read earlier, didn't we? Out of Matthew's Gospel. It's going to be unexpected. Even as in Noah's day, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, right up until the time when the Lord sent the flood. So it happened certainly in Israel. People were going on with life. They didn't know, they didn't realize that now, now the Lord was going to come in judgment. So it is at that moment when the Lord Jesus returns. And if the judgment against Israel was great, oh dear friends, it was just merely a foreshadowing of what the Bible describes as a kind of judgment that will involve that place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. The place of weeping and of the gnashing of teeth. If the Lord cast Israel out of his sight, there is going to be on that final day the Lord saying, 
to many, depart from me, for I never knew you. All of you workers of evil. Our Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about this final day. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33, verses 1 and 2. When it says there, this, that God has appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. And chapter 2 says that the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Dear friends, what we must realize is not simply that fact stored away somewhere in our minds. Oh yeah, Israel went into exile to Assyria, the year 722 B.C., and we spit it out as a part of the biblical history that we know. But rather, it must be deeply impressed upon our minds that the Lord came in judgment against their sin. This God continues to come in judgment against sin. There is one place of refuge and one only, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's part of what our job as a church is, is to announce that message Flee from the wrath to come. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you are righteous and that you are just. And we thank you for giving us passages like this out of 2 Kings 17 that tell us that you are a God who does judge wickedness and idolatry. O Lord, our God, we pray that each one who has heard this message tonight would indeed be found in the only place of safety, which is the Lord Jesus. O Lord, our God, each one of us as well knows many people who do not know you, who are in danger of this final judgment, and we plead for them as well. O Lord, convert them. Enable us to speak faithfully to them. By your Spirit, draw them, we pray, unto saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this. We praise you, O Lord, as the God who is glorified not only in mercy, but also in your justice. You are a God of holiness. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to now uh, respond in song uh, to this word that we have heard. Uh, The hymn is the hymn, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. Uh, It's number 387 in our Trinity uh, Psalter hymnals. 387. We'll stand to sing.
Lord's benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.